I never, Ian. We meet again. <laughs> Mr. Ian Mullen. Such was the success of the last podcast. I've been sent down by our listeners to uh, ask you a few questions that have been sent in. Great. Are you, you willing? Where's the coffee, by the way? <laughs> it's on its way. It's on its way. Checks in the post. <laughs> You've been really busy, haven't you? So, uh, <laughs> thank you for uh, finding a few moments for me. Right, I think we have 11 questions that have been sent in okay. by our listeners, which I'd like to go through. Ian, can you just introduce yourself to our audience and also where they can find more details on you? So uh, I'm a flute player uh, based in uh, Tunbridge, but London professionally. And um, I studied at the Royal Academy um, a long time ago now. I graduated in 2000. And since then, I've just played with a lot of freelance, with a lot of um, professional orchestras and done numerous trials for different jobs. And just hopefully an active, busy flute player on the scene. You're not bad on the old tube, are you? Well, hopefully. It's, it's how I earn my living, so I'd be in a cardboard box otherwise. <laughs> and where can people find... You have a website, so... Yeah, I've just got a new website, actually, just ianmullin.com. Uh, just my name, and uh, it's a, a fairly new venture. I'm still kind of editing it, but it's, uh, I'm happy with it. It's Is good. that the posh picture with you and your tails on the front? Yeah, 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 trying to, uh, trying to get some attention. Yeah, I thought about doing one of those, but everyone would laugh if I did it. <laughs> Right, question number one, Ian. That yep. was me clapping, by the way, if anyone heard that noise. But the positioning of the flute head joint into the body of the flute. Why do some players pull out a long way? And this is from June, based in Texas. Okay, so I, th I would say generally people view how much you pull the head joint out is how much air you use. So a bigger player um, will tend to pull the head joint out more um, obviously the danger with that and if you try and do it in in a short space of time as in pull the head joint out much further than you used to is that the bottom of the flute will be very flat and so it's it's getting to a point where the flute has to be in tune with itself with the harmonics uh, is a good starting place uh, as well as with a tuner but as you start to put more air through the flute you you might want to pull the head joint out it just gives you more flexibility and means you won't be squishing the top octave down and you won't over have to uh, compensate in the bottom octave as well but it's a progressive thing over a month or even years to, to pull the head joint and if you go to play to somebody in a masterclass situation um, you know people like uh, Wibb or, or James Galway they'll look at how far your head joint is out as a token of or a, a gesture to see how serious a player you are as well I would say I mean that's a generalisation, but but on the whole that that tends to be. And and then from my own personal point of view, when I'm playing principal flute in an orchestra, I'll pull the head joint out much more than uh, when I'm playing second flute, where I'm being much more reserved with how much air I'm using because I'm trying to tailor myself to or the sound to the to the principal flute. Whereas when I'm playing principal, I just play the way I want to play and just let rip and just put some air down the flute. Well, that answers that one, but and it leads into question two from an Adam in York is how can you find the correct position for your head joint? So, which I suppose is related to the position on the uh, body. So yeah. you're, you're blowing, yeah. and you're obviously wanting to see that whether the notes are sharp or flat as you're pulling the head joint out. Yeah. You, you haven't got, the flute's got, the head joint's got a natural line on it, some flutes. Yeah, yeah. Do you know automatically where it's going to go when you put it in, or do you start blowing and then... Well, once you get to know your flute and the way you play, you'll probably have a slightly dirty tarnished mark where that is the usual place that you pull the head joint out. So even if you don't have time to tune, that's a good starting point. 
the way that to find that point that I historically have done is is as we talked about before is and there's there's probably a, a YouTube video that we can link to with the harmonics with this but it's actually to just test the harmonics so if you start between C uh, three I, I would say so the second octave C two two octaves above middle C um, and play a fifth lower play an F harmonic fingering and you can do that between the D above that and G uh, I believe in terms of, of harmonics and just if they're roughly in tune that's a good starting place for the flute being in tune with itself with the harmonics then obviously you need to, you need to practice with a tuner as well but um, on the whole that that's a good starting point because when the harmonics are in tune with themselves it means that it's much easier to play in tune with their instruments they've got something to grab hold of in some of your harmonic sound not just the, 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 the normal pitch of the note but there'll be partials in the harmonics that are much easier to latch onto, uh, especially when you're playing with other instruments. Would you, do you think that non-professionals that don't put as much air in, once they find that point on pulling out, would that, would they going to have to be careful on the lower register where they're probably struggling to put a lot more air in, they're not going too flat or yeah, too Yeah, exactly. Sharp? I mean, that that's the thing. And, and the other thing is you don't want to go too far that you, you have to kind of play off the end of your nose. I remember when I used to teach at prep schools, saying to to small children that in order not to play flat that you have to imagine that you're a seal with a ball on the end of your nose to lift the airstream oh, that's uh, an idea you don't you don't <laughs> want to get to that point so much that you have to change the color dramatically just to play in tune either at the top or the bottom i mean in an ideal world um in a kind of a keats idea ode to grecian and you know perfection mm. in terms of that idea you want all three octaves to be the same quality of sound regardless of whether you're playing piano or forte and in which register you're playing. I mean, that's a very difficult thing to achieve. Um, but there are exercises that you can practice to get somewhere near that. I think Pahud's take on on the uh, sonority exercise, where what he does is he starts on a middle G instead of B, oh. because it's exactly in the middle of the three octaves C's. Sure. Um, and what he does is he does um, semitones, like the moist sonority, but with a hairpin. So a hairpin is a crescendo diminuendo. Mm -hmm. And to keep the pitch exactly the same from extremely quiet to extremely loud. That's it's hard, but it's it's quite easy to do in the middle register. When you get to the extremes <laughs> at the bottom and the top of the flute, then it's a much more difficult exercise. And you really kind of get to grips with the physics of what you actually have, have to do with blowing the flute to keep it in tune. That's interesting, because by doing that, and by actually following that, as you said, that Pahud study, it'll enable our listeners to actually find that position yeah so you don't just sort of guess it you don't sort no of guess you, it put, you put a tuner on and you, you do it you know scientifically and work it out and, and try and keep the quality sound to begin with don't be too ambitious maybe start between mezzo piano and mezzo forte and then as you keep the pitch level and you feel more confident you find the muscles to do those those dynamics ex extend the range to, to make it piano to forte and then as quietly to as loudly as you can play you've played a long way Hell of a lot further than I do. So um, you obviously put a lot of air in because you were taught really well. Well, yes and no. I mean, I'd, it, it's all relative to the situation. So um, 
it, it depends on, on what sort of repertoire you're playing and, and what situation you're playing in a big orchestra you're going to probably play louder and with more air if you're playing a solo recital you, there are certain instances where that might happen but generally you might be pitching slightly slightly more because flutes are nowadays tuned to 442 aren't they most flutes are yeah most flutes are tuned to 442 so that's another thing that, that will be different in different places over here we play it probably more just because we play at 440 which is a lower pitch to the rest of Europe and America yeah, because if you go to Austria, they're much sharper, aren't they? Four, 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 five. Yeah. Right. Alex in Aberdeen says, "What's the best note to tune to?" Um, it's a simple question, and I've never really thought about it. I mean, everybody tunes to an A because that's the note that's given in an orchestra. I mean, mm. and the same reason that, that that brass players, if they're playing in a brass situation, will tune to B flat because it's around their tonal harmonic uh, center. I, I don't think there's a best note to tune to, to be honest. I think you want to find a note that's comfortable in your range. I mean, uh, that's why A is good, because it's not at the bottom of the flute and it's not super high up. And, and so it's it's a comfortable note that you don't have to do any gymnastics with your embouchure to, to attain that note. So it, it's a good leveller, basically, I would say. Um, but, uh, you know, I would do some work with a tuner, but don't beat yourself up about it either. I, I think it's just as equally as valid to just use your ears and work on the quality of sound and build your own intonation. Um, yeah, with, to play in tune with yourself. Exactly, and, and to know where what is in tune as well um, without having to always rely on a tuner. So, uh, you know, this married with the, the harmonic exercise I think is, is a good place to start, but um, I wouldn't particularly say there was one note to tune to. Do you have perfect pitch or relative? I do. I do have perfect pitch. Is that is that a hindrance? It's something that I don't really use as much as I used to. I, I used to use it a lot when I was very, very young. Um, as I said before on the other podcast, I used to play a lot of stuff by ear and from memory. Or I couldn't afford to buy a new piece of music every week, so I used to just listen to a recording and then just try and play it. But perfect pitch if you've got perfect pitch at 440 if you have suddenly you have to go and do a piano concerto in germany and it then you find that the the orchestra's playing at 443 that gives you a headache so it's something and also it, it you need to play in tune with other people uh, i remember an instance where um there was an orchestra i was playing with and the the oboist had the tuner on the stand and had a bit of a, a discussion or an oh, argument with, with the principal flute <laughs> and the principal flute knocks the tuner off the stand and said well you're not playing with a tuner you're playing with an orchestra i think he was a bit more a, a, fair a, point, a though, stronger version than that but but um but it is true that you you, ha you have to you know and also that the, the tuner in itself there is 20 degrees either side that is still in tune yes it's not when the tuner, the needle is in the middle that you're playing in tune. It has to be relative to what note in the scale it is. You know, for instance, a, a G sharp is a leading seventh that needs to be slightly higher than if it was an A flat in the tonic of a chord or even a third. So all the notes are going to be slightly different place. And the, and the same thing with... Yeah, hold with, on to that for a second, because I've always told people that G sharp and A flats are different notes. Yeah. And they sound different, don't yeah, they? They do, yeah. I've always thought with singers, especially, we've talked about this before, I'm sure, but um, that you can hear even great singers. I mean, there's very few singers where it's without, it doesn't sound arrogant thing to say, but to understand tonality, if you hear a string quartet play, you really hear the tonality of which key they're playing in. Yes. And so I've always thought that singers shouldn't learn stuff 
by relative pitch or intervals with a piano because a piano isn't in tune it's just it's it's um it's relative pitch but they should they should warm up with a string quartet and then they might understand the nuances even more um of 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 keys um because i think this the string players it's the most extreme version of that i mean if you hear a janacek opera the reason that it's such an amazing colour is is when he plays or he writes with six six flats or seven flats even sometimes. Um, it's so f- alien and so far away from open strings that that is what creates that covered sound and the fingerings that, that create a, a really amazing uh, sound world. I agree, you can um, feel the vibrations, can't you? Yeah. Well, that's a very long answer to a very yeah, short sorry. question. <laughs> What's the best note to choose to? C sharp. <laughs> Second or two. Right. Harmonics. Now, there's a question on that's come in. Why are they good to tune to and also to practice? But I remember you've done a YouTube video on this that's got well over 100,000 views. So I'll add the link in yep. underneath the details of this podcast. Um, and I, I think I, I think we spoke beforehand. You're going to be re-recording some of these anyway because they were done a long time ago. Yeah, they're, they're kind of seven or eight years ago now. I think it may even longer. So um, it's it's great that they've they've helped some people. And and a number of times people came into the shop when I was working at the flute shop in North Flutes Plus, and uh, you know they said that those kind of two or three minute videos i mean that, that's a perfect length really without going to two mm. bananas with it people kind of switch off after that kind of time length but to give somebody a little snippet into helping practice uh, i think that's that's a good time frame and so i think I, I will try and invest some time into doing some more of those as i'm slightly older and hopefully more experienced now but um yeah there's i think there's a couple of ways of practicing harmonics and with which you can link to the videos one is to kind of check although harmonics are seen to be slightly flatter than the real note but if you can kind of marry them up somewhere near it's quite a good starting point and another reason for using harmonics for me uh, is i use it to kind of broaden my dynamic range and to, to play with an open sound keep the throat open and use a big, big vibrato to get the air excited through the flute um, to really help resonate without it sounding hysterical um, instead of just forcing more air through the same size of tube where it, that's when you start to hear the hysterical kind of billy goat flute player. Yeah. Um, you want to create a big Pavarotti sound, slowing the vibrato down with a much wider airstream. And then the an- analogy I always use is, is it should be like a double-decker bus going down Oxford Street. You know, rather than the, the the garden hose attached to the the, the tap, um, that then you, you create pressure and that's where you get the spray from. But you want with harmonics, it just enables you to open your throat and and push push each time you you try that exercise, push the dy- dynamic um, by another ten percent. See if you can play ten percent louder without it sounding forced. And make it just big bigger. When you're playing an orchestral situation, do you ever use a harmonic instead of the actual note? Uh, very rarely, very rarely. Um, there's there's instances where it, there's trick fingerings that you might need to when you're playing at speed. But um, on the whole, um, I I do do a lot of fake fingerings, but that's not the same thing. Mm. Um, I don't very rarely do I use harmonics unless obviously it's written in the part. Right. Question number five: How much time should we spend practicing, and is it possible to practice too much? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very quick for you. Yeah, <laughs> this depends on um, what stage you're at 
what level you're at and, and all the rest of it. Um, if you're at college, you should be practicing as much as possible. You can practice too much. I remember when I had to, I practiced for a certain project, I'd got to do this flute concerto for Michael Kamen when I was in my last year at college. And I practiced 12 hours, two days in a row and physically got pain from doing that the next day. So I had to stop. Uh, but after, I think you can practice four, five, six hours, no problem. If, if you're relaxed, you have to check yourself. And it's best to kind of take breaks and, and stretch as well. It's something that you don't really think about, especially when you're younger. But um, something that, that I have that helped from my martial arts background, but stretching, getting your body prepared, your wrists, your hands, fingers, as well as your embouchure, your lips, uh, they need to be warmed up the same as well. Um, so it's just a case of listening to your body and and knowing what works for you. I don't think anybody really needs to practice for more than three or four hours a day after college or, or in, in any situation really. So If you're having a bad day, do you just put it down or do you persevere? Um, it depends. It depends if you've got something coming up and you need to play. Uh, there's certain instances where you do need to... I've had, had it recently where I've had more time and I've had to just persevere to get back into shape. Um, there's certain things that I will do to do that. But you, you just have to knock knock your way through the brick wall and then just keep going and then there's other kind of mechanisms as well that I have certain tunes that I use that create a positive muscle memory that that will make the sound instantly much better as well as buzzing I do a lot of singing and playing as well you do don't you you warm up with that yeah I do that even if I haven't played for two or three days and I go straight into rehearsal it's very rarely but um even if I'm in shape, I'll probably buzz for four or five minutes at the beginning of uh, rehearsal, just before rehearsal. Um, what, what note do you sing? It doesn't matter. I, I, I don't even really sing. It's like a low grunt, like it sounds like you've you've smoked 20 cigarettes and had 15 gin and tonics. No, it's literally a, uh, oh, You know, just like a drone, like yeah. a really low note. And then I buzz, I sing and play at the same time and keep that going. Is that because it keeps the throat open? It does, um, and it also refines the the air how much air you're using um so that you get the maximum amount of sound with the least amount of air and it also trains your embouchure to begin with when you start doing that your lips really buzz um like almost like with a trumpet mouthpiece after a while they don't buzz and you just find a way of getting more of a bite or directing the air in the right place that the air feels like it's falling into the embouchure hole rather than you're fighting extension or blowing too much across the head joint um, so that that's probably the thing that I practice the most is is the singing and playing. I don't think I've ever heard you play the flute without you do that first. No, I is well, as soon as I put the flute together, that's kind of what I do generally. Scales. Let's moving on to scales. Yep. Now I love scales, and I'm sure you love scales, and many people don't. Yep. It seems to be the bane. As it, I've always loved even when I was at school, I loved scales. Yeah. Because it enabled me to play fast, and I thought I could show off playing fast. But do you have a quick guide on the best way to practice them? So yeah. boredom, boredom doesn't set in. So I, I do appreciate that many people don't like them. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't a particularly a, a huge fan of scales, even at college. Uh, it was something that I had to do. Um, and I didn't have the the background of, of people from... A lot of my friends went to Chets and Purcell, and they have an amazing... An amazing, especially Chets, that, that's mm. the, the real kind of... Um, backbone of technique and the, the the level of their scales is probably higher than college level to be honest uh, uh, even at high school um but the way to practice scales uh, the way 
I found the easiest way to just literally bash through all of them is to do cycles of fifths. Um, because mm. even if you're doing grades or whatever, that's a much more efficient way of doing it. What tends to happen is that you do three or four scales that you find easy and like doing, and then you don't do C-sharp harmonic minor. Um, so <laughs> the, the other way to do that is if you don't have time to do all of the scales is to actually, something that I learned from my teacher Carol as well, is to, to write all the scales down and put them in a hat and pick them out at random. Um, and then you, you won't find yourself always doing C major, G major, D major and F major and then giving up. Um, so practice cycle of fifths. So it goes through, if you're on a piano, you play C and go up a fifth, you come to G major, that's the first key with one sharp and yeah. then you go up a fifth into D major and, and so forth. And you add one sharp and one sharp and then it goes in harmonically back through the flats, down back to F major and back through to C. And obviously do the same thing with the minor scales as well. Um, but I've found that's, that's the best way of practicing scales. When you get to a slightly higher level and you want to get a bit more serious, you can do the, the Tafel and Gobera TJ number four in the second volume is the, the straight up and down scales that goes through the different keys. With those exercises, and there's a few exercises, I think there might be some questions later with regarding exercises and everything else, but with this one specifically, I'll stop and talk about that. What you should do is you should choose a different articulation for each line that you're playing. And also play with a metronome with a minim beat, not crotchet beats, because then you'll end up hitting every beat. The other way to avoid hitting the beginning of the scale or certain points of the scale is actually to set the metronome to a minim beat and use it on two and four. So you're playing when the metronome's not clicking. Yes, yes. And then you'll find that you'll have a softer, more fluid start to the scale without hitting the note and then spending slightly too long on the first note every time you, you start the scale. Ah, so if you, did this, if you did the beat every four, you'd, you'd end up rushing. You'd end up rushing and you'd end up hitting beats. Yes. By, by having a soft first beat where the metronome isn't going, it stops you whacking that as yes. well. Yes. Can you give advice on how best to keep the throat open whilst you play? And do you use the mouth like vowel sounds a lot? So this kind of follows on from the singing and playing thing. That's probably the most obvious. Uh, and also the same thing with the harmonic exercise. Um, if you're singing and playing, another good way of practicing scales is actually to buzz, to do singing and playing. Because what you'll often find is that in the third octave, the throat gets very tense and closes. Then the singing stops. And it's very obvious if your throat closes because you can hear that the singing stops. So to actually practice scales slowly with the singing and buzzing and in the third octave, especially over the top when it when it goes over the top and comes back down to really slow the fingers down as slowly as possible within the tempo that you're playing so that you don't create tension and, and have that rush going over the top but um singing and playing singing and playing is, is is my thing do you ever think about aeio yeah i mean when i was going through a nerdy phase and and i did some playing with um andy nicholson uh first of all in the Halley and then the rpo yes. we used to when we, if we were bored in rehearsals we used to pl try and play different phrases with those different sounds but but i think it's more a case of just controlling color uh, using uh, my favorite for for color exercises for ipavan playing with a really dark sound and then playing complete opposite very open fluffy almost french sound uh spilling a lot of air over the top of the head joint and then seeing how many shades you can create in between that so start with three start with a dark your medium your middle of the road sound and then your really light open sound and then see if you can do five and then see if you can do seven uh, and just take it from there so think more more in terms of color rather than different vowel sounds
With um, smartphones that we have nowadays, would you recommend people record themselves? Absolutely. I mean, and it's quite a good quality. I mean, an iPhone, especially without creating an advert for iPhone, is um, it's a very good quality that if I'm preparing for auditions, you can hear all you need to hear. It's not going to be the best quality in the world, but that it's enough for you to know the characteristics of your playing, certainly pick up on nuances with vibrato or missing vibrato or intonation or traits that you have with phrasing yeah i'm feeling really guilty here because i can't find the names of <laughs> where these I'm, I'm busy flicking through the paperwork um i'll have to admit defeat hold my hands up so i apologize for you lovely people who sent these questions in question number eight many flute players and students in particular live in their own insular performance teaching and study bubble how do you discipline yourself to make space for other things is it possible when you're music college or when you're just totally enthused and engrossed by the instrument? I mean, I think there's a time and a place. Uh, and you see it with people, especially when they go off and they do a year's study somewhere else, abroad. And that that's an even more extreme version of that. And, and you see some really great re results because people throw themselves into it. And, and you need a, a period in your life, if you want to be a professional player, of doing that. Um, I think there's... Um, you have to, to to have something to bring to the table as well. So you ha you have to have life experiences as well as being stuck in a practice room, um, and it's a combination of those two things. But for a period of two, three, four years, I think it's a good thing to to be quite nerdy and just play the flute as early in the morning as possible and as late at night as possible. That you don't have to warm up. That you are in constantly in shape, and then you also need. You also need to to have friends and experiences and travel and well, that's important because if you don't have those life lessons, how can you? Because music's all about emotion. Yeah, it's not just about the note; it's about the gaps between the notes. It's yeah. about the different tonal colours with each. You have to have. I mean, there's that. I don't know who who I heard say it, but you have to have loved and lost a love yeah. to understand what heartbreak and romance is. No, absolutely. Yeah. So it, you you would recommend people try to have a, a life as well as a. Yeah, I mean, I had quite a colourful college uh, for various reasons, but um, I certainly did. I ticked both of those boxes. I, I practiced a lot, and I had a colourful, experienced life, and and travelled and did lots of things. So um, that was equally as valid, I think. You know, to to have those experiences, to have something to say. You know, you stand up in front of all these people, and it's it's like being naked. If you've got nothing to say, there's there's, there's no point in being on the stage. So. Um, and it's a different thing. There's lots of people that can play their instruments to a very high level technically, but yeah. you, you also have to get to the next level. You have to have something to say as well. Yeah, anyone can. Well, anyone can play fast, but that doesn't unlock an emotion, does it? Yeah. Sometimes yeah. It's, I, I won't bore you, but I went for an audition many years ago, and I played the first movement of Ebert. Yeah. It was a for college audition, and uh, it was with Jim Dow. And Jim said, "How do you think that went? That first movement? I went. I think it went really well." And he said, "Now play the middle movement." Make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up, and I was like, "What? It's slow." Yeah. And of course, I couldn't. I could, he, he said, "If I heard you walk, if I was walking down the road and heard you playing the first movement, the Ebert, I won't cross over." Yeah. If I had heard you play the middle movement, then I would. Yeah. I mean, something I I heard recently on on YouTube um, had, and I've actually been fortunate enough to play next to Dennis Spirikoff in in the orchestra. Ah, um, uh, you show off you. And <laughs> uh, well, he came into the he came into London Philharmonic for a trial, and I was playing second with him. But he um, 
historically he's known for playing these incredible technical pieces but yeah. the thing that was very impressive that I heard him play recently was Bach G minor uh, unaccompanied violin piece I think he's transcribed it in B minor but uh, there's a couple of different versions he's wearing a black shirt I believe in, in, and he's playing it in Russia and it's absolutely sensational playing it's an encore he played after playing something with the orchestra but um, it's lovely to hear somebody that is known for technique like that to, to play incredibly musically and, and beautifully um, to that level and if you haven't heard it check it out on YouTube it's, it's really sensational flute playing I haven't I haven't even seen it yeah. good grief yeah. can you give me the link yeah. when, when I leave Right, this is moving back to you, actually, and I don't know who to say. I don't know whether you've sent the question yourself, but um, <laughs> it's probably my mum. <laughs> <laughs> you've worked closely with the specialist London Flute Shop, All Flutes Plus, for many years, yeah, and have obviously moved away to start your new orchestral life. But you also remain heavily involved with the fam- famous Japanese flute brands Miyazawa and Senkyo. So, what is your advice to a flute player thinking about upgrading their flute? to a really expensive brand yeah I mean when I was working in the shop the thing I liked uh, about uh, that was trying to be apolitical Uh, people have views and and people have influence from their teacher because they like a certain brand I would just put all the flutes out on, on the table and just play all of them and see which is easiest and which suits you the best uh, it might be that your teacher plays an Altus or a Sankyo or Miyazawa or any of those brands or any of the American brands. But actually, it's what works for you. Uh, everybody's different, and that's that's what's nice about it. It's the opposite to the the, 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 the Ford mentality. You can have any colour as long as it's black. So when you're yeah. <clears throat> when you're watching, excuse me, my voice is going here. When you when you put these flutes in front of people, can you see by their reactions which one they're gelling with? Yeah. Or how does that work from a, a professional point of view from you rather than the person that is actually physically blowing it? Yeah, you can, you can hear the difference. You can hear if somebody's struggling or they find the articulation more difficult or easier or dynamically or if it's they can do smoother intervals, especially in the top of the flute. Um, it will be to do with the shape and the size of the embouchure hole and, and how it suits the, the, the embouchure of the person playing. But just play something you feel comfortable with uh, be ruthless and play the same tune uh, or melody with the four or five flutes that you've got and then narrow it down to two two or three that you like and then lots of the shops do this if you can't make a decision sometimes you have a, a Harry Potter moment where the, the one chooses you and you know it, it straight away that that's the flute that you want but if you if you're kind of swaying between a couple of flutes take them away for a week or two weeks and play them to to your teacher and some other people and play them in an environment that you're used to in in your school orchestra or orchestra or whatever and um and and see see it you know in in a real uh, real time uh, and see how you get on with it basically i mean uk isn't really known for its uh, preference for gold is it compared to other countries are you seeing a change a slow gradual change in the uk or is it still very much silver it's predominantly silver and there's a couple of, of, of big players that play gold notably um sam coles and anna noakes yeah. um uh, but uh, i think it's partly to do with the uh, the pitch um you'll find on the continent the more people play gold flutes i think because it's a what i would call a brighter sound and 
it's it's easier to play a higher pitch I think um, there's there's pros and cons for playing silver and gold you know um, so it's a very individual thing but I think it's also a financial thing over here as well <laughs> so, yeah of course it, what would yeah. your ideal flute be you're going to say platinum is no, 14k uh, keys aren't you I don't know I, I, I could see myself playing a gold flute where I couldn't 10 years ago but um, it's it's having the money I mean keep buying my euro millions while, while we haven't left yet <laughs> but um, it's, it's got to be worth £2.50 half a pint of Guinness just to be in it to win it but um, that's that's yeah I, I think whatever works whatever works for you most people at any level will, will be able to tell relatively quickly um, what they find easy to play so turning back to flute study books, where I think we touched on earlier, what's your favourite study books and yep. why? Um, there's lots, really. Uh, the the sound exercise or sonority that I worked on a lot, I did with Carl Gallet number seven with, with Jaime and doing that super, super, super slow for, for weeks and slowly ramping up the, um, the uh, tempo to make it faster to get every note equal it's it's written in fives mm. um but to get it rhythmically and tonally uh sonority wise incredibly equal and unison is a very hard thing to do so that's one of my favorites um i like the tuffle and goba stuff finger stuff um i like number 10 tj10 the uh, arpeggios where one note changes each bar mm-hmm. I like those exercises when I was at college especially I like to practice in pairs it it motivates you more to play and practice with somebody else you can either play a line each and it becomes a a macho thing that you don't want to fall off it in front of your colleague or friend and you can ramp the tempo up with a metronome the other thing you can do is you can do it in contrary motion so they can start on the top in the middle of the bar and you start at the beginning of the bar and you do contrary motion that's that's a really nice and it sounds nice as well when you play both play the right notes. Sounds like you're jousting. Yeah, but it's it's it just motivates you when you're playing with somebody else like that. I like EJ seven as well for the same reason, uh, which up the octave um, and practice it the same way. Change the articulation in every line, and if you are playing with somebody else, do a line each. And um, the trick with that is when the other person's playing is to actually finger the notes so that when you switch them back, you're practicing when you're not playing. You're giving the the tip away here. (laughs) Do you have a favourite piece of music? Um, I know it's really hard. You you may have been put off some at music college, but... Yeah, I I don't know whether I have a favourite piece of music. Growing up, like most people, you you go through the the phase of playing all the French stuff when you're a teenager. And I'm coming back to that kind of repertoire as I've got older and I've had to teach it to other students. You know, you you enjoy it. Oh, you're a romantic you. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) but you you have a different appreciation when you, when you're teaching something, you analyze it much more uh, and you come up with reasons for, for playing a certain way. I think with a lot of that French repertoire that actually, if you play what is on the page uh, and don't take too many liberties, that will give you a performance different to 90% of flute players. The the case in point is Syrinx. Um, by Debussy that if you actually played what was on the page and didn't mess around too much with the rhythm you would have quite an individual performance <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you must admit if you type that into Spotify or go into your, um, YouTube there are so many different performances on of that yeah I, I, I have a a, um, a little royalty check and I don't know how it got out but um I did a Yamaha competition when I was at college in St. Johnson Square and this recording of Syrinx got out and it's used on French radio. And for the last 
20 years I've had a royalty check every three or four times a year for about 30 euros so it's it's a nice little earner for not doing anything you realize if they found out yeah. that you're English that would be <laughs> <spoiled straight> away. <laughs> so um, yeah <laughs> what piece of advice well one piece of advice you can give to a flute player to help their practice and study yeah I think um, especially if you're working towards something is to actually decide what you're going to practice before you practice it when I was being the most efficient and I had stuff that I was aiming for I would uh, print out a, a blank timetable for the day by 15 minute or 30 minute slots mm -hmm. And actually the day before writing what I was going to practice, rather than just deciding on on the fly, you know, well, I'm going to do, I start with a bit of sound stuff and then play repertoire or do scales or whatever. If you're very methodical and you, you put down exactly what you want to practice, then you times that by having a goal of two, three, four, five weeks in advance doing that kind of practice, then that would make you much more efficient and get you to a much better place. And do you get nervous? Um, yeah, when you get older or more experienced, you learn how to cope and manage those nerves and not show them so much, um, uh, maybe. Uh, and it's like the analogy we used before about the bank account, that if you've done a lot of playing experiences and you've done a lot of practice over the years, you have a much bigger resilience than when you are put under pressure. Um, and there have been instances where I've been put in really difficult positions where and you, you're never you're never going to get a massive amount of gratitude from those positions going into sight reader concert when somebody's ill you know at the time you, you you'll you'll get a, a lot of praise but it won't actually make that much difference to your career if you went in and completely spooned it and splattered um, <laughs> it all over the stage and that would do, do your career a lot more damage yes. than, than actually trying to save the day so it's knowing the level of how much you're worth you know uh willing to risk and um and and having confidence to just go in and do a good job well, i think that's it not trying to blag it because i think when you blag it there's an underlying insecurity isn't there yeah i mean i i think as you get older you don't necessarily say yes to everything whereas when you're younger you do because you want an opportunity and that's the point where you i mean i've been very fortunate i haven't spluttered anything major ever and that those crucial kind of points it's actually done me some favors but it, it's a you can you, cat's only got nine lives and um you can you can push it in those situations to the point where you know it's going to do yourself more damage well i'm a minus 11 so um <laughs> <laughs> i'm like arnie i'm coming back i'm yeah. coming back yeah. well ian you've been very kind uh certainly to do another podcast with me. Yeah, no problem. Um, I take it life's treating you well at the moment? Yeah, very good. I've um, got nothing to complain about. Um, enjoying my new change of work balance and, and playing much more. And um, Yeah, how are you finding that, not having to get up first thing in the morning to go into London? It's a, it's a revelation. It really is. Have you got your student head on again? Are you sort of sleeping in? Uh, no, I'm not sleeping in. What I'm trying to do, I was speaking to a friend about this the other day. It's a bit like about a boy, you know, the, the novel. <laughs> yes. You have to have units of time, and especially if, you, if you're if you trying to practice and work in the environment that you're living in. Uh, I spent a lot of time trying to keep the flat clean to have good headspace. Mm -hmm. And I also take my laptop off to the local coffee shop, and I have a window of a couple of hours to, to do admin and things that I need to do or generate you know more work uh, and then I'll be very clinical about practicing as well the same thing I'll, I'll decide what I'm going to practice the day before 
and I'll, I'll try and clock a couple of hours earlier on in the day. And then I have other things I enjoy. There's a, a gym that I go to literally 200 meters from my house. And, and then I do my training as well, the martial arts, and obviously playing uh, playing with the orchestras and rehearsals and concerts. So it's creating structure in your life when, when you're freelance. That's the key, I think, to, to being productive and staying positive and being in shape. Um, and your neighbours don't mind the tube screaming every now and then? Um, I, to be honest, I think they're out during the day, so I'm, I'm very... Uh, I practice at times when I know, you know, mid-morning that they're not going to be in and, and do my practice then, my two two or three hours then, and then I've done I've done it for the day and then I can go off and enjoy doing something else. Not 7.30 on a Sunday morning? Absolutely not on a Sunday morning, no. Uh, and Sundays are my, my day with my daughters, so that's that's my my sanctuary there that's, that keeps me sane. Yeah, the return back to normality. Yeah, exactly. Are you finding you're watching, um, we digress here, are you watching kids' programmes, TV programmes now and reading kids' books? Um, yeah, I, I, a little bit. And what I was quite sad about is um, there's a great programme called Hey Dougie, which is a bit like I South Park. I was on Park. the radio this morning. Was it? Yeah. Um, it's a bit like South Park in that it's, it's as much for the adults as the kids when you're watching it together. And um, I'm very sad that we don't watch Hey Dougie. She's grown a bit on from that and there. But um, um, yeah, it was on BBC Five Live on breakfast. They were talking about Hey Dougie. Yeah, I'd never heard of it. Yeah, it's great. It's a great. The, 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 it's basically a dog that is uh, like a nursery teacher, and all the kids go get dropped off, and they get a badge each week for a different, like like scouts. So they have a different thing they do. But the dog doesn't actually talk. He just he just woofs. So they have a, a posh narrator. And whenever anybody asks Dougie a question, he goes, oh, <laughs> and that's all you get out of him. But he does it in different ways that he answers the question. But it's, a, it's very entertaining anyway. And what is wonderful is that as you grow up, you go through the phase of being experimental when you're young and carefree. And then you become sensible. Yeah. And then you have kids. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you get this joy of life again, don't you? No, absolutely. Uh, I have so much fun with my daughter. And uh, you, you can see there's a, a corner of my room that's kind of dedicated. She has an easel um, with paints and everything. And we, we do lots of painting and playing and drawing together and um, have a very creative Sunday. So um, it, exactly that. You, you kind of um, find uh, your inner child again and, and actually take the time just to enjoy playing which you know you, you don't do as an adult you don't take that time out of your day to just have fun like that and what the perfect way to finish this podcast great have fun chill yeah enjoy laugh because you're smiling now yeah and be yourself yeah thank you Ian no problem been That's a pleasure you. thank you yeah. my friend yeah. we're shaking hands now for those <laughs> anyone heard a noise thanks again Ian thank you Flutes and Talking Flutes Extra are podcast productions by the Trevor James Flute Company. For more information, visit trevorjamesflutes.com.